Welcome to the Midcoast Sports Network Podcast. Here's your host, David Brown. It is the final episode. It is the last dance of the Last Dance Podcast. Jordan on Jordan, David Brown and Jordan Dalton here. And it, it's weird. It, it seems like it just premiered and now just like in, in a snap, it's over. Isn't that tough, man? We were just talking about how... Uh depressing Sundays might be yeah <laughs> we had something to look forward to yeah but uh it, it ended well it there was a, a lot of good stuff in episodes nine and ten and, and over the whole series we'll talk about the the lasting impact in a second but but your initial thoughts on just the last two episodes I I kind of went into it knowing you know of course you know these are the last two so I had certain expectations and I will admit there were some things I wanted them to cover a little bit more but overall I, I got a good picture in the last two episodes yeah I, I thought it did a good job of just wrapping up um the dynasty as far as so much of it was really unfinished uh because typically like you said when you see dynasties end it's because they you know somebody else you know a younger team is is on the come up or there's a new player that they have to and they just they just can't overcome or there, there's usually something on the basketball court that is the reason that a dynasty doesn't work, right? Like we talk about with the Warriors, you know, KD going down and Clay tearing his ACL that eventually allowed, you know, the Raptors to win the series there. And then after that, obviously, contract situation just kind of uh, fell through. But uh, it was on the court. You know, they, they lost in the finals where that was, I mean, it was a culmination of it, but it was like, you just would have loved to see what would have happened in that that seven, you know, to go for that seventh ring, um, and that, that's to me how it, you know, how it wrapped everything up is that, yeah, we were great, you know, we, we dominated. There were some bumps in the road, uh, but we still feel like we could have did more. And and that's an interesting question to pose because it gets into kind of what you alluded to. Do you let a dynasty fizzle out on its own, i.e., the Warriors, where they, they you know. Uh, I, I will personally admit I was never the biggest fan of, of the, the Curry-Thompson Warriors, but, man, they went down fighting with all the injuries and stuff like that. There's a certain admiration for giving your, your all and just petering out, where with the Bulls, it, it just felt incomplete in a way, and, and we'll, we'll get into the validity of whether Jordan was being you know truthful in the sense that he could have come back if everything worked together, but, but is, is there... Do you like the idea that they ended on a high note, or did you want to see, like with the Warriors, you want to see them, you know, old and, and gray and just giving it their all until they can't do it anymore? <laughs> well, and see, I, I, what, at least what I would have wanted to see, because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, in 98, MJ still won the MVP, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's, to me, that's the toughest part. And Scotty was still, I know Ryan was kind of saying, you know, certain guys are overvalued or whatever, but it's like. Like you see it all the time today, where guys will take one-year deals for the veterans minimum to play with LeBron. You know, what I mean, like there could have been a way to work it out. It just seemed like you know management, you know, or this Reinsdorf and Kraus just had their feet dug in so hard on what they wanted to do for the rebuild um, that they got to the end of the road, and there there was no way they could backtrack. We'll circle back to that, but we'll start with the most surprising thing you learned. And again, there there are certain points where you and I as Bulls fans, you know, we, we kind of know most of it. The, the funnest part for me and the most surprising thing for me is that there had long been rumors that the flu game was actually the food poisoning game. And 
His trainer had seemingly said it. Yeah, it was bad pizza a couple years ago. But we had never, at least to me, we had never heard MJ confirm it. And he finally confirmed it wasn't the flu, it was food poisoning. I was actually surprised he admitted that. Just because the, the, the myth and the legend of the flu game has has you know penetrated society for for 20 years and for him to finally admit yeah it was bad pizza was one eye-opening and two uh, i kind of mentioned this to you before we started talking it honestly makes it more impressive i think food poisoning is probably a little harder to play with when the fl- than the flu oh i 100 agree one well, the fact that it's such a uh, uh when you hear the flu you're like all right there's just nothing you can control and that one food poison it's almost like all right, there's some fishy stuff going on there. And I had never heard that rumor. I had heard, you know, terrible rumors that he was out drinking too late and, you know, he was really hungover and he wasn't actually the flu. But but to learn that it was food poison, like you said, and that just hits you so violently so fast. Um, and just to see how incapacitated he was for most of the day. Um, to me, it, like you said, the, the legend grows a little bit more. Uh, but in the tag along, uh, you know, in, in, in game six, in the final following game, I had no idea uh, of, of Pippen's back spasms, you know, during that game. So that was, uh, was that, because that was the same series, correct? No, that was 98. That was, was that, Okay, that was 98. Okay, gotcha. All right, sorry. Got, yeah. the, got the two confused. Um, but that was, uh, you know, as far as surprising things, I didn't realize how bad uh, Pippen was spasming, spasming up during that game and how much he had to leave and come back during that series. Um, so, so that, that surprised me. And then uh, on top of that, you throw in the whole Dennis Rodman situation. Oh man. Leaving through to go do the NWO wrestling. And again, it's just all these things that seemingly are huge distractions never really seem to, to affect the team that much. And that's a credit to Phil Jackson, where we talked about <laughs> in previous episodes, how he kind of let Dennis be Dennis and it, it takes a lot to, to accept Dennis's, you know, side life or side projects or whatever you want to call them. But Dennis responded. The funny part was he went to that NWO wrestling match with Hulk Hogan. And then he came back in game four of that 98 series and probably had his best game. He got a bunch of rebounds and he hit some key free throws late. So I think that was the culmination of, okay, if you let me do what I do away from basketball, I'm still going to give you 110% on the court. What I think to me, that's the difference, uh, a big difference between uh, when people say players, coaches, it's really coaches that understand their players and understand when there needs to be a little leeway given and when you need to pull back the reins. Uh, you know, I don't, I think that term gets thrown around as far as, you know, the term players, coaches, as far as guys who just try to be friends with their players and let them do whatever they want to. It's like, that's not the case at all. I think it's more speaking to coaches that just understand personalities and relationships. And, and that's what you said. You see the, the genius of Phil, you know, isn't the, you know, the, the triangle offense. That's Tex winners. But the genius of Phil, regardless of wherever he was at, was just the ability to manage personalities. And, and obviously did it to, you know, with the, you know, with the utmost success. Yeah, you got the Bulls. Then, of course, later on in his career, he coaches the Shaq and Kobe Lakers. So he he dealt with all these different dynamic personalities, and he's the most successful coach in basketball. Yep. Yeah, and like you said, and it's and nobody ever talks about X's and O's with him. It's just how much he valued and understood relationships. And I and I think at, at any level, when you're talking about leadership, I think that's the thing that that will stand out the most, and that's why. You know, it, it was tough to see Phil kind of go out the way that he did with the Knicks and kind of how he just 
basically seemed like he, he wasn't interested in doing that job, but they paid him a boatload of money, so he wasn't going to turn it down. But, uh, you know, he had such a, you know, such a great, great reputation of, of just being, like you said, a solid dude who cared about people and who was willing to, to kind of let people be themselves within the confines of a team. And so that was, that was, that was cool for me to see how, how kind of all that came together. And speaking of relationships, uh, some of the funniest moments was just Reggie Miller and Larry Bird in the trash talk with MJ. <laughs> just Reggie Miller saying how I'm not going to trash talk him again because MJ said, you know, you can't do that to Black Jesus. This is Michael Jordan referring to himself as Black Jesus, by the way. <laughs> and then right after Game 7 of the Pacer series, and, and that's the next thing we'll get into, you know, La Michael Jordan and Larry Bird meet in the tunnel and... Jordan's swearing at him and saying, you know, go work on your golf game. Like, he never let it go. And he's just like, you know, you gave us a scare. And he gave him his respect, but he couldn't help getting the dig of, you know, you can work on your golf game as he walked away. And that's just it. Like he, You could tell that MJ kind of lives for those moments. Because we talk about all the stuff that he takes, uh, you know, to put a chip on his shoulder. You know, little slights that really aren't slights to most people, but he takes them as such. Uh, and I think when he, when he wins, he wants to hold it over you. And let you know that he's the champ and he's the man. And it sounds like it's always been that way too. That was a cool part. You know what I mean? He, he didn't change from his rookie year to the you know the year his final year with the Bulls in '98. It seemed like he was always that dude. But it, it, it was also done out of like a sense of camaraderie too, because it wasn't like he was you know talking trash to bums. You know what I mean? He was he was going after Hall of Famers. So if, if you didn't if you didn't rank on that list, he probably didn't even say anything to you. He just went out there and did his work uh, to let you know how great he was. But when it was people that he respected, he wanted to talk to you a little bit. And what's funny is that sort of goes into that whole Bulls-Pacer series because they win, the, Chicago wins the first two games. And then game three in the press conference, he says it's just a bump in the road. And what's weird is it almost seemed like the Pacers took that as a slight against them. And then Reggie hits that big shot where he pushes off in game four. And Michael almost hits that double-clutch three off glass that spun out. I still can't believe he nearly got that to go in. But it was just so interesting seeing how tight the series was again. And the, the one I kind of alluded to earlier, the one thing I wanted them... Uh, there were a couple things, but one of the things I wanted them to go more in-depth on was games five and six. They said, you know, they split five and six, and then it was game seven. Game five was a Bulls blowout. They beat them by, like, 30. And then game six, what they don't talk about in the documentary is Michael's driving for the game winner, and he trips and stumbles. And I wanted that part of it just to show, you know, he is human a little bit. You know, game four, he misses the shot. Game six, he trips. And so there were a couple of human moments where you got that legit thought, like, is this it? Is this over? And then they, they get to the heart of game seven, but just the, I felt a, a little chunk of that Pacer series was missing. What do you think? Well, yeah, just to, to add to, to the drama of it, like you said, we know the Bulls end up winning, but just to show how tough that series was, um, and, and it kind of reminded me of, honestly, you know, their series in the earlier 90s, uh, or excuse me, in the late 80s with the, uh, the the Pistons as far as just this tough physical team and just showing that the Bulls, you know, although they, they obviously won the six championships, they had some tests along the way. And I think that's the cool part about it is it wasn't like they were sweeping everybody. I think they said they only ended up going to like two game sevens in that entire stretch. But, uh, but to, to know that, 
there were teams that were definitely able to test them. And just to get a better understanding of how much they were tested, I thought that would have been cool. Yeah, I, I just wanted a little more in-depth on Game 5 and 6, but obviously Game 7 is the one where, you know, they're down by double digits early, they come back, Kerr hits the big three and, and ties it, and then they eventually go on to win. But, yeah, I, I wanted a little more in-depth on that, but it still did a good job of portraying just how... And you see MJ in the locker room afterwards, you know, he's congratulating people. I think he understood, like, you know, he, a big relief was off his shoulders. For sure. And, and the fact that, like you said, when you come that close to losing, I'm sure there's a, there's a little bit more of a gratitude, uh, more gratitude afterwards to say, like I said, this thing could have been over a little bit earlier than we expected. Uh, but, but you kind of alluded to it, too, and I, I think we'll get to it later, but how MJ was always able to kind of stay present in that moment. They, they talked about that quite a bit in the – um, you know, in, in the, the, the final episode, but how he was just always, I don't know. He just had a sense of confidence about him, uh, that when you're on his team, you felt like you're always going to win. And when you lost, it was a, it was a huge shock because he never projected, you know, that, that sort of defeat mentality. No, he didn't. And that leads into, uh, there are a couple of good poignant emotional moments, but one of them at the end of that game seven of the Bulls Pacer series he gives the game ball to, to Gus, the security guard. And it was an, an interesting aside because they're in the middle, storytelling-wise, of you know this Game 7 of Bulls Pacers, and they talk about his relationship with the security guard, Gus. And you saw earlier is you know the security guard, John, the guy with the perm who beat him in quarters, and all sort of those guys around him. And I think that sort of encapsulated just how those guys were there to protect him. They didn't want anything from him. They had a job to do. It just so happened to be making sure that the greatest player in basketball history, you know, got from his car to the locker room okay and, and got out okay, but there, there was a camaraderie in it, and it was nice to see that contrasted with MJ, you know, the, the maniacal competitor. Well, and you talk about, obviously, the age difference between Gus and, and MJ and how, you know, MJ talked about how Gus was a little bit more of a father figure to him after uh, he had lost his father. And so I think it's one of those situations where when you're around these security guards on, you know, so often on such a consistent basis, you're able to talk with them. And it, and it just seems like it was very few people that he was able to let his guard down to and just kind of be, be real, be vulnerable, uh, you know, be emotional and just and, and just hang out with you know and i think that's very rare for for people of that stature to find and so i think they cherish it you know at least mj seemed like he cherished that that relation those relationships a little bit more because it was times we talked about how all of his time just seemed to be monopolized by just different obligations and so when he's able to be around his buddies you know who, like you said our security guards they have a job to do but it just seemed like he was he was just in a, in a relaxed and relieved headspace. Um, and just to see how, how much further, you know, Gus went above and beyond. You know, you heard his, his, his lovely wife talk about how Gus would get calls from MJ at 2 a.m. when he was kind of struggling after his dad passed away and he'd go sit down with them. And it's, it's, it's things and actions like that. So like you said, these guys didn't want anything from MJ. They just wanted to be there, do their job but also be there for him as a friend. And I think that that's the cool part. I always say, if you talk to any player or any athlete in general, of like, what do you miss most uh, when it pertains to team sports? And it's it's the camaraderie and the relationships. Um, and that was just another extension of that. And, and you and I have alluded to it, but I think it's just worth pointing out and, and hammering home. It would be tough, and it would be tough for anyone to be around Michael Jordan and not want something, whether it's a picture or an autograph or, or even, honestly, just a quick conversation. But I think Michael, with 
the global icon that he was cherished people who didn't want anything from him. Like you said, they just had jobs to do. It just so happened to be guarding MJ, but they didn't want anything from him. They, they, they didn't see him as any different than the average citizen, and I think that's something he truly appreciated. Yeah, well, because he talked about it so often, how he, he he didn't live a normal life. Like, there was no way he could live a normal life. So I'm sure when that portion, uh, you know, when that aspect of your life is taken away at the age of, what, you know, 24, basically, 25, uh, you know, ever since then, you haven't been able to be a normal person. I'm sure you just crave that normalcy. And like you said, with those guys, it, you know, they were able to give it to them. Um, and then you, I know you kind of mentioned in, in, in some of the pre-show stuff that we did, but I didn't understand Steve's Kerr's background and everything that went down with his father, um, and just in the manner that that happened. So like that, to me, that hit me on a, on a different emotional level. Um, cause I didn't realize, you know, that he was this great professor and then was this, you know, college president over in Beirut and, and how there's so much unrest and he was, he was still there trying to teach kids and, and ended up getting, you know, killed during doing his job. And it, it just puts a different perspective to, at least for me, on the person that Steve Kerr is. Because uh, I've heard him, you know, I follow him on Twitter. He always um, is, is very, very much outspoken on things that he doesn't agree with and, and things that he sees wrong in our society. And now you understand, like, that's the way he grew up. You know, he grew up with two two professors, two, two academics. He, he grew up kind of in, engulfed in what's going on in society. And so it just kind of, I don't know, it, it paints a, a more complete picture of who he is, not only as a basketball player and a coach, but as a person as well. Absolutely. And, and I had read a little bit about Steve Kerr and, and his family, and I, I knew his dad was killed back in the 80s, you know, during political strife in the Middle East. But yeah, it does kind of give a, a, a background to, to Kerr, as you said, you know, the son of academics, someone who prides himself on being educated and, and of being, uh, you know, just a well-informed citizen, not just a basketball player. And it, it adds just sort of to the richness of, of how he, like his mom said, invested himself in basketball as, as kind of his coping mechanism. And, you know, scratches and claws. And obviously he's had a, a very successful career as a, as a player, a broadcaster, and now obviously as a, as a coach with Golden State. But it, it just sort of adds to the background. And that's, you know, for me as a, a storyteller and someone who appreciates good stories, I enjoy well-rounded characters, quote-unquote. And, and that just adds to, to everything about Steve. Steve, I've, I've seen a bunch on social media today. Steve should probably have his own documentary. Yeah, well, just you don't understand the things that people go through. And we... We talked about how, you know, or they talk, the documentary spoke about how him and MJ got into the fight, but the fact that he stood up and, you know, didn't back down from MJ and showed that he had that tough competitive spirit, but more importantly, that mental toughness to kind of get through that. And so when you hear his background, you know, about how his, you know, how his father w was killed and, and kind of how he still had to go through that and finish college and still pursue, uh, you know, an NBA dream, even though he wasn't very highly regarded coming out, um, you understand that he's built for those moments. And, and like you said, it's all that adversity that you go through um, that, that where if you're in a basketball game, that's the easy stuff, right? Because you've dealt with so much adversity in life. Um, so it was just, like I said, it was, it was cool for me to see, you know, how, how he, how he gained some of that mental toughness. Um, and, and just, you know, I always respected the guy, but just even elevated that respect a little bit more. Best quote. And, and obviously, you know, as, as we've gone through this podcast series, there have been a lot of good quotes, but it's, it's just funny when they ask Scottie Pippen, what are you thinking when MJ's bringing the ball up down one in the final seconds? And he's just like, get the hell out the way. <laughs> Go stand in the corner. 
and Dennis Rodman had a couple more expletives saying, you know, oh, he's, sh he's shooting this effort. <laughs> yes. And uh, so, so I'll get back to that. My favorite quote was already when MJ was, was talking to Reggie, like you said, don't talk trash to black Jesus. So that, that puts you at a whole different level when you're going third person in that regard. Uh, but, yeah, those quotes from Pip and, uh, and Dennis Rodman, like you said, you, they knew, they, they recognized the moment, man. And, and it's, it's cool when you're like, yep, we're in the presence of greatness. And if we go down, it's going to be with that dude shooting the basketball in his final game in a Bulls uniform, man. And that leads back to what you talked about a little bit earlier. And I think it was uh, Mark Vansell who uh, co-wrote a book with MJ called Rare Air, where he said there are so many people you know, who, who go off and practice yoga, who go off and meditate, who try and be present. And MJ was just present. And you really see during that 98 finals in what is the last series of the last dance, you know, MJ's grooving on the bus to a Kenny Lattimore CD and he's having fun with the media and he's joking around about missing the game winner in game five where he's like, everyone's holding their breath for a second. That's cute. Like he understands himself and he's so calm. I found that fascinating. Well, that's probably why he's one of, if not the, the most clutch performer that basketball has ever seen is because when you get in those moments, man, it, I can only imagine at that level how intense and how tense everybody is, you know, because you, you don't want to be the one that everybody's pointing the finger at that makes a mistake, right? And, but in order to, to thrive in those moments, you kind of have to relish that, that, hey, I've prepared, you know, I've, I've put in the work. I've shot this shot a thousand times. I know what the defender's going to do, and I'm going to go up here knowing that I'm going to make it. But you also have to be willing to live, you know, with kind of the blame if you miss it. And I, and I think that's where a lot of guys shy away from wanting those big moments is because everybody wants to be carried off the court on their on, on people's shoulders, but nobody wants to be on the not top ten turning the basketball over in the final seconds of the finals. And it was something we saw during press conferences after the Utah games, and then after the Indiana games, where he's like, "Yeah, we're going to win Game 7. And he's <laughs> he's there. There was there was just a confidence and and a, an almost a coolness to him that obviously came from experience. You know, at that point, he had won five in seven years. It's not like he hadn't been through the grind before. But I just found it weird. He seemed so at ease. He didn't seem stressed by anything, especially during those finals. And, and like you said, I think that's where that just superior confidence comes in, but because of the work ethic. Uh, and, and I always kind of when I was coaching little guys, I would say, you know what I mean? People who are confident, they're confident because they know they put the work in. And I think that's where a lot of that confidence stems from. He talked about it. He, he never asked anybody to do anything that he wouldn't do. And he did everything at 110% and, 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 and was perfection-oriented, right? And so when you put in that work and you prepare for those moments, now that the, the, the bright lights are on and, and, and they're shining on you, you feel comfortable because you know you've done the work beforehand. It, it's the ones that are nervous that haven't put the work in first. Yeah, and it, it's – fascinating just because the the ebbs and flows of that series were were interesting you know game three was the blowout where the jazz only scored 54 points which is first of all can we talk about that oh yeah how, how does that happen in an <laughs> nba game where you're one of the top two teams in the league and you score 54 points in a full 48 minutes oh man there there are teams who have 54 and a quarter nowadays i mean it, it is it's, ridiculous it's that that was nuts but then you had you know rodman going off uh to russell and then coming back and being clutch in game four and then utah stealing game five and then game six you alluded to it pippen had the bad back you know they were 
you know, he's hobbled, he's a decoy, essentially. He, the, the team, it was a phrase used a lot, but it looked like they were running on fumes. And, and Jordan's just trying to, to muster up enough to get him over the finish line. And it's, it's so inspiring to see, and it's also just, you know, amazing to watch and just see, like, you know, as you alluded to earlier, they didn't blow everyone out. They had some real close calls. And I think back to 93, they won game six by a point on a last second shot. 98, they won game six by a point on a last second shot. Like they're, they're literally like two or three baskets where the other ways, maybe the Bulls only win three championships. And, and that's how slim that margin is, right, between having a great dynasty and, like you said, maybe being four and two in, in, in championship series. Uh, but that just also speaks to the level of competition that they were going against, too. Uh, like you said, between the, the Charles Barkleys and the Carl Malones and, uh, you know, the Gary Payton, like they were going against some dudes that could go. Um, and every time MJ and the Bulls just find a way to kind of pull pull out the win, they were talking about that championship DNA you know, when you've been in that situation multiple times, there's a level of comfort that you're, you know, because you've been there, done that type deal. And I, I honestly think that that has a played a huge role in it is is MJ failed earlier in his career just because he wasn't necessarily as comfortable in those spots. And, I don't, and that might mean not trusting his teammates or, you know, not not looking to make the right play and always trying to be the hero. But it, it, you have to have some of those failures in order to kind of get over the top. And I think that's what happened is once they got there, they kind of had that experience over a lot of people. And let's get back to something you mentioned. I hate, absolutely hate the argument that Michael Jordan was playing against bums. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I, I, I know people, and, and by the way, we're not going to le- debate LeBron MJ because it's just an endless argument and no one will ever agree. So just let's, appre- sure. <laughs> let's just appreciate the greatness and that. But the, yep. the, the people who make the argument for LeBron say MJ played against, you know, plumbers and like, you know, delivery truck drivers. It's like, did you see the trivia that he eliminated 20 Hall of Famers during the postseason during his career? <laughs> it's like you said, Barkley and Ewing and Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and Malone and Stockton. None of those guys have championships because of MJ. Come on I was now. Say Reggie Miller. Like, yeah. The list goes on and on. You're just in a bad air, right? But like you said, you you take MJ out of the era, and it's it's much more of an even fight. But like you said, they had some dudes on their squad on those teams, man, that could really really go. Um, and I think Patrick Ewan was the one that said it before. He's like, I was just born in the wrong year, man. <laughs> Let's get back to game six because, you know, we're, uh, you know, for for the purposes of this podcast, we're just going to pretend that he never came back with the Wizards. Are we good with that? (laughs) Absolutely good with that. So the last sequence of his career, they're down three. He drives to the basket for a layup, steals the ball from Carl Malone, and then hits the game-winning shot. Like, you have everything that Michael Jordan was great at encapsulated in 40 seconds of a championship moment. Like, it's, it's, it's perfect. In the fourth quarter of Game Six, a closeout game in the finals on the road too, right? And and so the the cool part for me is I remember that steal like that's one of the the very few basketball plays where like I remember watching that happen because it just seems so surprising at that moment and you're like only MJ can pull that off. I had no idea that he came that the play before he just drove basically the length of the floor and finished within about ten to twelve seconds to even you know, put the the Jazz in a situation where they had to shoot and the Bulls would still have time on their hands. And and so, like, that was the cool part is that you said. It's just, that is MJ, right? 
lights are shining, it's closeout game, you're on the road in a hostile environment, and you make all the winning plays to put your team over the top. And I think we talk about it all the time. It's like it, there's a difference between guys that just have talent and ability and guys that have just like that that dog mentality. When you put those two together and you have some of the greatest fundamental skills that MJ possessed with great athleticism and with one of the most, if not the most competitive spirit ever, like that is, that's all in, like you said, those last 40 seconds. And now we get to the, the, the favorite point of contention, the push off, or did he push <laughs> off? I have long contended. And, and, and this to me is, is never, at least to, to me, never really been articulated. If you watch it, yes, his hand is there, but look at the amount or lack of amount of force the hand does to Brian Russell's leg. He barely touches him. Like, people are, like, the push that Reggie Miller gave to Jordan to free himself for a three, that was a full-on shove. <laughs> the two-hand shove in the chest? <laughs> yeah, the two-hand shove in the chest. This on Brian Russell, one, as, as Bob Costa said, it was like a mater d' showing someone to their table. And, and two... <laughs> Brian Russell was already off balance, and it's it's barely noticeable. Like it's, I, I've long felt that the the push off debate is this: Did he use his hand on him? Yeah. Did it affect it? No. I was gonna say that shot was going up and going in, regardless of where that left hand was. Uh, and I've never given any credence to that because it's like that is one of the most outrageous things in the world to say. Like that's the only way he freed up space. It's like he had a move made up in his head. He knew how Brian Russell had been playing him the entire game. He knew what shot he was going to. Like you said, Brian Russell was already off balance as soon as MJ put the brakes on. There was no chance that he was going to do anything to be able to get back and affect that shot. What's what's not mentioned in the documentary and what I find hilarious and fascinating, did you know that Brian Russell and Jordan were teammates on the Wizards when he came back? Oh no, really? <laughs> so this was, you know, this was back in the day, you know, Jordan, you know, after he retired from the Bulls, became the, you know, the GM of the Wizards, and then For of sure. course play, came out of retirement, and during that time, the Wizards signed Brian Russell, like MJ wasn't <laughs> the one who signed him, but they were teammates for a little bit, which I find incredibly ironic. Oh, because I'm sure they had some awkward conversations <laughs> in the locker room, or awkward for Brian Russell, I think MJ was, was pretty good with the situation. So one thing that I did, and I, I had one of the, the most, the highest levels of admiration for Carl Malone when he came on the bus and shook those guys' hands and congratulated them after winning game six. Like that was one of the coolest things in the world because you know you've, Carl Malone has just almost reached the mountaintop, almost gotten to the place that he wants to be at as far as holding that Larry O'Brien trophy in the air. And, you know, to see a great team take it away from you. And for him to still have that level of respect and maturity to be able to go on the on their team bus, shake their hands, tell them good game, good series, that was the craziest thing in the world to me. Because I don't know very many people um, that would have been able to do that. And you must have been reading my mind because that's where I was actually going to be going. To, <laughs> was to Carl Malone anyway, but I agree with you. I, it also leads to another point, which I found cool, just the way the old press conferences were set up at the United Center. Like, you see MJ and Reggie Miller talking after a game. You see MJ and Larry Bird. You see him come out of the presser and he shakes Carl Malone and John Stockton's hands. It's like, there, there was something so simple and gratifying about just recognizing, like, hey, you know, we're, we're doing battle right now. And then afterwards, as you said, for Malone to get on the bus, that after losing to him for the second year in a row, I mean, that's that's a lot of pride swallowing. And, and it's, it's cool to see. And it's I also think it puts 
guys, you know, in this generation in a different light too, because I hate the the notion that like all oh, these guys are too much of friends, you know, in this generation, and that means they can't compete hard. It's like that's not the case at all. It's just like these guys have just known each other since they were seven years old playing on the AAU circuit. That you know, they when the when the ball's thrown up, they go at each other, uh, but they can still be cool and hang out afterwards. And it's like, yeah, in the in the late nineties or early nineties and, and late nineties, that happened as well. People just kind of, I don't know, it, it rubs me the wrong way when, when for whatever reason, just because guys are cool with each other, uh, you know, other people think that they can't compete as hard as they want to against one another. And, and that, to me, showed that that couldn't have been further from the truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I completely agree with you. You know, once, it's it's like we've alluded to, when you're in the situation, you got to be intense, you, you are, are trying to go for a goal, and then afterwards, yeah, you can be fine. You can be friendly. It doesn't take away from what happens on the court. It's like it's 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 two separate scenarios. It's two different segments of society. It's two different parts of, of your day or of your life. It's, you know, I, I just think that people kind of have a hard time reconciling the fact that you can be a fierce competitor and go at someone and then hang out with them afterwards. Yeah, it's just like I, I respect because I know the work that you put in to get to the, you know, to the place that you're at because I put in similar, if not more work. Right. And so you're, you, you get probably similar personalities. We're, we're, we're about the same things. And, and so I like I said, for, for Carl Malone to do that, man, that was uh, that was one of the coolest things. And that's that, obviously that's like a, that's a teachable moment for for any young player growing up. It's like, you know, when, when you if you if you have the confidence in yourself and, and you have the swagger to go about things when things are going well. Well, everybody can do that. But, like, how are you when defeat happens? How are you in times of adversity? Because that's when that true character shows. Nothing encapsulated the the fame and just how big of a phenomenon the Bulls were than after they won the sixth title. Because randomly, Leonardo DiCaprio was in the locker room. I was just <laughs> I was gonna, laughing around, around at that. The same time as what Titanic came out. It was six or? months after Titanic, and Jordan was talking about how he watched Man in the Iron Mask, and <laughs> it's just it's weird to see a, a you know a, a early twenties Leonardo DiCaprio there, and then the bus ride back to the hotel, and you see the mobs of fans, and just the lobby is just filled with people, and it's just like this is this shows exactly how special they were. And this is on the road. That's the thing. You know, yep. it's just in Salt Lake City. So, like you said, it's just, you to, to this day, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, early 30s to, to, to mid 30 year olds who, when they started watching sports, this is what they grew up with. And that's why I think it's such a fond, uh, you know, people have such a fond memory because it was like in some of your most impressionable years, like this is what you fell in love with. And this is the thing that you're going to pass on down to your kids. So this is what you think or set the standard at. And and so that's the cool part to me is that like you got a lot of people just reliving a lot of glory days because of how big of rock stars those guys were. All right. Last couple categories. Who is your MVP of episodes nine and ten? So, I, easy answer is MJ, obviously, uh, right. for, me, for me, just because of how he was able to close out things. But, again, I still go back to I have a whole different level of respect for Steve Kerr, um, just because, obviously, going through some of the things that he went through, uh, you know, with the with the loss of his father and, and just being, you know, kind of underestimated his entire life. Um, and still finding ways not only just be on teams would be big, uh, be a big contributor. They talk about not just the, you know, the one shot he hit um, and, and the finals where MJ finally trusted him, but you know, he had a couple of big shots throughout those series and he's one of those perfect compliment players to where if they don't have him on the squad, 
it makes it a lot harder for MJ to do what he does, right? We, we They talked about it all the time when MJ was just getting loaded up, double and triple teamed early in his career, and he just didn't have the resources around him to be able to, you know, find some of those outlets for, for guys to, to knock down some shots and take, take a little pressure off of him. Um, so just, again, the combination of just understanding a little bit more about how Steve Kerr grew up, how much he values and cherishes, you know, academics and just being a positive member of society, and then just overcoming a lot of those obstacles and adversities that he went through, man. Um, my hat's off to him, but uh, at the end of the day, the GOAT, MJ, is always MVP. <laughs> yeah, and, and and obviously he's he's the MVP of the whole series, but I thought for these two episodes it was Phil Jackson because when things got tense, the Indiana series – Dennis Rodman leaving in the middle of the finals to go wrestle. Like, he was there. And as you kind of alluded to, players coach is kind of a a nebulous term now. No one even really knows what it means. Does it mean your best friends? No, it means that it's a coach that understands his players to the point that he can maximize everything out of them. And I thought, I didn't know about the the writing of the notes and the ceremonial Mm. burning uh, in the coffee can at the very, very end. I thought that was really powerful and... And Steve Kerr's talking about how MJ wrote a poem and got really emotional. And I think it's uh, a, a catharsis in a way because it was the sim- the symbolism of, you know, we did what we were supposed to do. We accomplished what we were supposed to accomplish. And Phil basically confirming, you know, this was it. So now we need to put some finality on it. And it was a really interesting way of just letting go and saying this was a period of time in our lives we'll always remember it but now it's time to move on yep and and like you said it was it was one of those things he seemed more at peace with with the decision than anybody again they they kind of talked about or reinsdorf at least alluded to the fact that he said hey you know phil you can come back if you wanted to um but there are some things we're gonna have to change which doesn't really leave him a lot of uh, options but just when, when phil talks you could just tell he just seems like he was at peace with the whole thing being done. Let's, you know, put a, you know, close the book on this or close the page on this, you know, phenomenal story that we've written. And let's all move on to the next chapter of our lives. And again, for him to be such at peace, uh, you know, with the, you know, for him, the the eight year run, you know, the between because he was obviously still there when MJ wasn't there. Uh, you know, for him to just be such at peace with with, with such a, a dynasty and such a great, great portion of your life being over, it just, I don't know, it just kind of speaks to the level of person he is. And, and that leads to my least valuable player, which was Jerry Reinsdorf. And I kind of mentioned it on an earlier podcast, you know, Jerry Krause obviously gets a majority of the blame, but, but Reinsdorf's not necessarily, you know, getting off scot-free here. And... It just seemed at the very end he just had built-in excuses. What what they don't mention is that back then the NBA didn't have one of those structured salary gaps. They don't have, you know, the, the tax or, you know, the repeater tax and all these penalties. He was able to re-sign Michael Jordan for significant sums of money because it was based on what was then early bird rights in terms of being able to re-sign your own guys for higher than, than other teams. And so... His argument that the 98-99 team couldn't have come back to do a a run at number 7, do a run at 4 in a row, it kind of fell flat to me just because, as you said earlier, and the reason I wanted to circle back around to it, there was always a way they could have figured it out. 100%. And it just shows you how, like, over time, 
he's probably told himself that story so many times <laughs> that he actually believes it. But when you say it out loud, it's like at, at no point in time is anybody buying that. Like as far as, you know, Kerr and Pippen being overvalued and not being able to re-sign guys and, you know, MJ still coming back to – uh, to a rebuilt team and Phil still being able to lead them if he wanted to. It's just like there was already so much that was said as like, hey, at the end of the day, you write the checks, right? If you wanted this to happen, you can make it happen. And, and again, it, it, you, I don't care what excuse you come up with. There's nothing you're going to be able to sell me that if you didn't want that team to be together or if you wanted that team to be together, they wouldn't have been together. Like, there's no way that doesn't work out. And so, like you said, it was it was excuses that fell on deaf ears to me. Um, and there was nothing he was going to be able to try to explain away um, that would have made any sense to me about how you don't bring the greatest team, you know, that the NBA has ever seen back, back for, for a fourth run. And the, the key thing is, is something that uh, Michael refers to kind of in the last five minutes, where they could have nixed all of the issues at the very beginning if Jerry Krause doesn't say this is Phil's last year, it doesn't matter if he goes 82-0. and 0. Like, if he hadn't said that, again, this is butterfly effect, do they still compete as hard because they don't have a nemesis? Yeah, probably, because MJ's wired that way, but then... You don't know if it's Phil's last year. Maybe Phil's rejuvenated and stuff like that. Because the, the long-held contention was MJ was going to retire because they knew Phil was gone. Well, if you don't know Phil's going to be gone, then the rumors about MJ retiring don't start. Maybe MJ enjoys the season a little bit more. It, it's so hard to tell, but you, you think about the circumstances and if they could have just... If Jerry Krause honestly just could have kept his mouth shut at the very beginning of the season... Maybe they go through that season, they win it, and they feel like, okay, let's let's try a new challenge and go for a four-peat. Well, and, and that's how and we kind of mentioned it a, a lot of times during this podcast about, like, as far as, like, egos, right? Like, an ego can be a good thing. Obviously, MJ has a huge ego. It's what drives them to be great, right? But, like, when you let that ego take over, you know, everything, that's when it starts to be detrimental. And I thought just through this whole process, that was – one of the biggest things that, that I learned about specifically that final year in 98 is that there were just way too many egos involved for that thing to sustain. And, and that's the tough, tough part for me is the fact that it wasn't, again, I keep going back to it. It wasn't a basketball situation that, you know, ended that dynasty. It was the egos of owners and management and people wanting credit. And I, I think that's, that's tough when you, as a you know a basketball fan you just in the purest sense of, of basketball standards it's like that's the coolest thing that i've ever seen was was that run by the bulls and and because of egos and and you know wanting to have credit and and wanting to have you know that admiration that that other people were getting that's the reason that things in and that's that's the toughest part for me to swallow yeah and and as mj said at the very, very beginning, when he's in the post-conference of the 97 finals, where he says, you know, we have a right to defend our crown until we can't anymore. Then in the post-game celebration 98, he's laughing and saying, they can't win till we quit. <laughs> and you, you go through that, and it does feel just a little bit like, I don't know, I, I think over time we have accepted that we would like dynasties, we would like great teams to go out fighting like the Warriors did with all the injuries last season. And so if they had come back in 98-99 and say they had lost in the second round or lost in the finals or something like that, 
then you can say, all right, they, they tried. They, they went until there was no gas left in the tank. There are some people who like that it ended on a high note. Jordan's not one of them, and, and some people <laughs> don't like that. But it's, it's just a fascinating debate on how we view dynasties. And, if you know, the argument against LeBron is that he he's 3-6 and six in the finals. Like, what if MJ was 6-1? and one? Would that, you know you know, puts, uh, you know, an error in his mystique or does the six and O just transcend everything? It's, it's hard to, it's hard to decide what the right answer is. Well, and it's tough because like what's, what's cool. What was cool about that team is you talk about different dynasties. Like nowadays people can't wait to see dynasties fall off. You know, everybody was rooting against the Warriors. You know, I can't tell you how many people can't stand the Patriots right. <laughs> just because they win so much. But like, that was a dynasty that, Genuinely, just about everybody, unless you were fans of the the Pacers or the Knicks or the the Jazz, like most people rooted for that dynasty to win. And, and I just don't think you see that too often. But it was because of, like you said, they were just just what they did for 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 basketball, not only basketball, but just like American culture in general. Just like how they elevated certain certain things. It was just that, that everybody was a part of it. Like it was it was a bandwagon that everybody seemed to want to jump on. And, and so that was the the toughest part is that like you have a well liked dynasty, which just doesn't happen. Right. And you and going back to the Patriots, you know, Tom Brady won a sixth Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Lost in the first round of the playoffs last year. Now he's a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. It's like. You enjoy seeing guys, or at least for me now, I think I have a greater appreciation for people who give it their all and just want to keep going until they can't anymore. And it's it's just so weird because in the end, obviously we know the Bulls begin their rebuild, and that that was kind of the, the I, I found that funny at the very end where it's like the last thing is and the Bulls begin their rebuild because <laughs> they're still rebuilding. And, say, yeah. On their third or fourth version of that. Right, and... But what's also funny is Scottie Pippen, of all people, gives Jerry Krause credit at the end, which I thought was very interesting because, you know, maybe hindsight and, and the passage of time has softened things a little bit, but both sides were kind of right. Pippen was never an all-star again. Dennis Rodman barely played again. The role players, none of them did anything of significance, save for Steve Kerr, because he won a couple more titles with the San Antonio Spurs, but... They kind of were at the end of their rope, but again, I go back to if things had been handled differently in 98, maybe everyone's fresher and more motivated and they're not as hurt and they're, and they're more in tune with the team concept. You just, you just never know because it's weird because both sides kind of had a point. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but it's also like people always talk about how, how great it is to be drafted by great organizations or to be traded to a great organization. And I think that was a portion of it is that like, it wasn't that these individual parts were so great. It was the fact that they meshed so well and they trusted each other and they had a chemistry and a cohesion about them um, that just allowed them to overcome certain things that they lacked as far as, you know, the youth and the athleticism and some of the other talents. And I think that's the one thing, because I, I love listening to like analytics and kind of how that's changing the game and and how how people are you know a lot more focused uh in, in a much more efficient way because of stats and because of analytics you can you can basically process a lot of information to figure out hey what's going to give me the best opportunity to win uh, but again in team sports the especially in basketball the one thing that you can't analyze is chemistry and do i trust the guy next to me and i think that was there was a level of, of that chemistry there that that you can't be measured and, 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 it, and it can't be replicated uh, with a lot of other parts. 
it's it's just a fascinating what if and and you know again we can debate it till we're blue in the face but it's it's just interesting to see how you know you can see the validity of both sides of the argument but it, it would have been interesting because again that was the lockout season so they only would have had 50 games and then a playoffs you know for a veteran team that might have helped in a way yeah exactly like you said you don't have to play nearly as many games you're probably not traveling nearly as much like you said it's it's the old game of what if it's just like I said, it, it, it sucks when you, when you feel like something's been taken away from you a little bit too early. Yeah, and obviously, as we know, MJ eventually retires. You know, he, he waited until the lockout was over to officially retire. Uh, reading on the internet, a lot of people don't know, he actually cut his finger on a cigar and sliced a tendon on his shooting hand. So even if he had come back, he would have played most of the season because he got a surgery on his hand. But as he, I read an article today where he said, well, if I knew I was coming back, I probably wouldn't have been fumbling around with that cigar cutter. So, again, but, <laughs> well, butterfly effect purposes. I was going to say, from the looks of it, he smoked a cigar just about every day. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. He might have been a little more careful, though, had he known go. he was going to be playing. But all in all, it, it was great television. It was entertaining television, captivating television. To you, is, is this the definitive word, or there going to be more things are there still enough questions out there that more people are going to want to explore mj you know 20 years from now when he's you know a, a 70 late 70s year old gray beard to, to me i don't know what else you can go into you know what i mean i don't i don't know what other aspects of his career you can go into that they didn't touch on uh, in this documentary especially some of the off the court stuff uh, you know i think i heard one of the producers talking on svp yesterday um about how they you know they they did dive into some of the off court stuff as far as the gambling and why he left the first time and some of the things surrounding his dad's death and you know i mean some some real sensitive subjects i can only imagine how you know mj would feel is feeling when he, he gets asked those questions or gets put through the ringer like that so it's to me the unfortunate thing is that it did launch this whole lebron versus mj debate like i i'm with you i can't stand that in, in, in most situations just because uh, again comparing people in very different generations is very different and it is also you know those are two in my opinion very different players um i just would like people to appreciate greatness and more than the basketball stuff it's the mentality and i think that's what i at least i took away from from this this documentary is just the absolute dog mentality and competitive drive that michael jordan had is is i've never seen in any other human being and i think to me if you Again, the, the accomplishments and the, the basketball talents are great, but if anything, it's kind of that, that mentality that you're able to live by, which I think also, you know, was then was then kind of ingratiated into Kobe's Mamba mentality. I think that's to me that's that's the the legacy and that's the greatness. Um, and I don't know what else more, you know, could be dug up. I, I agree with you. I, I think there there's a certain satisfaction with what we saw, and and as you alluded to, the the mentality. You know, the end of the seventh episode where he explains why he was so hard on his teammates and and why he had this competitive drive is there. I think maybe the one thing, and I and I've seen this everywhere, is that they didn't talk. They talked a little bit with his kids. They didn't talk to his ex-wife, and so the the only thing you maybe want more of is. What was he like away from basketball? Did his competitive drive 
harm or hurt the family dynamic. And I've seen interviews with his kids over the past couple of days. You know, his kids are very well adjusted, all things considered, growing up as the, the sons and daughters of Michael Jordan. But you, you maybe miss just a little bit of did his drive from a sports aspect impact other areas of his life? We saw the gambling stuff. I'll, I'll, you know, I give them credit for addressing some of the more you know, seedy and controversial parts of his life. I guess maybe the one thing is the family knife. And we have not heard from his ex-wife throughout this entire process. She hasn't given any interviews or anything like that. So that may be the one area, but you also understand that this is already a 10-part documentary and that the scope was focused on basketball and having this basketball footage. So it, it, at this point, it, it, it's nitpicking, but it also is, is maybe just a, a little bit you wanted more of, but I still found myself overall satisfied and understanding of his legacy. Yeah, and I think that's at the core of it, what, what, what I'm sure MJ wanted, right? Is that like, hey, this is why I played basketball the way that I played basketball. We, we joke, it's, it's hard enough to get him to, to do interviews or he's very selective about, you know, what he, you know, puts out there for, for public consumption. Uh, so the fact that he was able to, you know, and, and willing to do this in a specific manner, uh, you know, was great. And I'm sure from the family aspect of it, I'm sure the privacy part of it still plays a, a big role. Um, I always joke, you know, playing you know AU basketball in the same program with Jeff I so you never knew Jeff was MJ's kid until somebody told you and I think they liked it that way for the most part is is so they can still like you said for the most part live somewhat of a normal life um, and so I would imagine that that has something to do with the fact that you know maybe not wanting to go down that that rabbit hole too much for sure and and as I said you know it's a nitpick at this point I I thoroughly enjoyed Every part of this, you know, it's 10 parts, you know, uh, you know, everyone's been joking, you know, is there an epilogue, is there an episode 11, an episode 12, or something like that. Um, you know, I, I think just people's appetites, especially at this time, for, for something that's, you know, nostalgic and something that's in, in warm and inviting, you know, uh, just a, a weird side, you know, angle of this is obviously... It's coming out at a time where society is kind of grounded to a halt, and it takes you back to a time in the 90s where things were just a little simpler. A lot of eyeballs, right? A lot of eyeballs right now that was on that documentary. And like you said, it's just the contrasting, I don't know, times a, a little bit more. But again, like you said, it, it just came. They, I'm glad they pushed, obviously, the, the debut of it up uh, because it was just, I don't know, after, you know, when you read the news and you look on Twitter and there's a, there's a million bad things going on in the world, obviously, um, to just be able to escape, which for me, that's what a lot of sports is, is just able to escape, you know, kind of what's happening and being able to sit down and connect with somebody that you maybe don't know on a much more intimate level or somebody that you, you know, you love and you love hanging out with. You're just able to escape whatever, you know, that that reality is for a little bit. And I thought I think that's what it did. Right. It, it took it took took people's mind into a different different route and just and it enabled them to 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 witness some greatness but also like you said just to see some great characters man it's it's crazy how we call it like, I, I love the fact that you say you call them characters even though it's a documentary but that's exactly what it is it's like i'm sure everybody that watched it can find some sort of something to relate to you know based off of one of you know one of the characters in the in the, in the doc and it was like i said it couldn't have came at a more perfect time man 
it's the embodiment of greatness. You know, I, I tweeted out yesterday, there's a reason I wear Jordan 11s to basketball games. Just a wonder, they're awesome shoes, but uh, <laughs> just they're, they're, you know, they're, they're greatness. Like, you know, I, I can safely say I will never be considered the Michael Jordan of anything, but when don't, I wear... Don't limit yourself, oh, DB. Don't limit yourself, I, man. I, 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 all right, I'll take that <laughs> advice, but but I, I, I like the shoes because it's just like, all right, you know, these are, these are good enough for, for the greatest, and... I just loved everything about Jordan. Um, I had Ray Clay introduce my wedding party at my wedding to the Alan Parsons project because those Bulls starting lineups were just so iconic. You know, this this was just, you know, nostalgia for me. It, it was, you know, great memories, a simpler time. And all in all, I'm just appreciative. Just appreciative that we had this. Well, and then how appreciative is everybody of uh, Adam Silver for sticking a camera in these guys' face for a year oh, yeah. to get some of those footage, you know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm with you, man. All in all, all around, I just, it was it was great to see. Again, it was, it's cool to see that, like, you, MJ just didn't arrive at the mountaintop. That's what I hope that a lot of young kids who watch this have a chance to, to see, is that there was a lot of stumbles along the way. Uh, but just through mental toughness, perseverance, and just, again, uh, a, a maniacal intensity for winning, he's able to get to where he's at. Again, we, we there's a lot of myths about MJ, about how great he – I shouldn't say myths about how great he was, but I just feel like people only talk sometimes about the accomplishments, but it's the process that I I, I loved to, to see and just to, to have a, even much more of an appreciation for, for, for the things that he accomplished. And that's a good note to end on. This was our last dance. I appreciate you doing this with me over the past six weeks. It's been a lot of fun going down memory lane. It's been a lot of fun watching this and just makes me want basketball again. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll get some form of sportage soon and, and obviously some form of basketball soon. But until then, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, this is the one of the most fun things I've ever did. Thanks for putting so much effort and time into this thing. And uh, I, like I said, thanks for this platform, too, to be able to just get some dialogue with some friends out, man. This is, like I said, one of the more cool experiences that I've ever did. So thanks for letting me be a part of it, man. Absolutely. It was great for me as well. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Jordan on Jordan podcast. Thanks for listening to this Midco SN podcast. To listen to any of our past episodes, visit midcosn.com slash podcast.